We're going to be in John chapter 14. Picking up right where we left off last week. Jesus is in the upper room discourse. He has washed the disciples' feet. He has told them he's about to be betrayed. And as you would expect, there are lots of, as my kids would say, big feelings in the room. I think the prevailing one is actually anxiety. And I think that every one of us in here that knows that struggle all too well can be sincerely helped by this passage tonight. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Jesus says this. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So first principle here, organizational in nature, Jesus comforts his disciples with multiple truths in these two verses. Let's break it down. That first phrase, <coughs> let your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled. This is a picturesque word. Two different thoughts on this. One person points out that it is the same word that is used for the water uh, earlier in the book when the water was troubled. But another person points out that this is the same word that was used just a few verses previous, that it describes the emotion that Jesus had when Judas went astray, that he was affected. So one translation of this could actually be, don't let your heart shudder. It's a strong word, and he's speaking to the gravity of the situation that they were experiencing. Also in the original Greek, this speech that Jesus gives to them that he uses here, it is a command, but it is offered with uncommon gentleness. So he speaks words of comfort to their hearts exactly where they are. Doesn't he do the same for us tonight? But Jesus continues these commands of comfort in the next verse as well. He says, believe in God Believe also in me. And what's interesting about this is even though it is an imperative or a command, it could also be rendered something more like this. You do believe in God. Keep on believing in him. And the way he's using the word belief here or believe is from the Old Testament usage, which denotes a personal relational trust. He's saying you have anchored your hope in the God of the Bible. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. And again, is he not saying the same to us today? Because even though these disciples are in a real fix here, coming on to the home stretch of Jesus' life and ministry, are they not also a real pointer to the, to the struggle and stress that all of us face today? And this concept here of belief, I think it's so interesting that Jesus points this out. Because think about what comes under attack most quickly when we find ourselves in a trial, in a period of stress, in a real season of struggle with anxiety. It is belief in the character of God. Because what is the, the line of logic that Satan likes to use when we get bills that we can't pay or we have medical problems that no one has an answer for or you get some kind of diagnosis that no one wants. God doesn't love you. God has given up on you. 
If God really loved you, he wouldn't let this happen to you. God's not really in control. He's not really for you in Christ like the Bible says he is. Is that not the screamer, worm tongue, real that the enemy likes to play in our ear? It absolutely is. So we need to be very tuned in to what Jesus is telling them when he says, believe in God, also believe in me. You do believe. Keep believing. And what's interesting here too, and we'll point this out later in the passage, but <clears throat> this is another one of those examples where Jesus is linking himself with God. Many of these guys would have believed in the, the Hebrew God of the Bible from the beginning, and he's saying, listen, I am the one that has come to fulfill all of those promises. He and I, we're linked. And so he reminds them of this. And I think when we think about these two ideas here, I think we need to ask ourselves, okay, so if we are just like these guys, our situation is different, but boy, it's similar, how do we keep believing well, the divine end of things is if that we truly belong to Jesus, he is going to persevere us to the end. That is settled. But yet he also uses the means of grace that he has given us to cause that to come to pass. So we do bear a responsibility for, as you would think of it this way, topping off our belief tank, so to speak. And so the question then becomes, okay, so how do we do that? How do we keep believing in God. And the good news is, big part of it's what you're doing right now. Sitting under the faithful teaching of the word and then continuing to fill yourself with that faithful teaching any other way you can. Books, podcasts, community group discussions, good music, anything that reminds us of those characteristics that always come under attack in times of stress and struggle. What helps you to remember in the goodness of the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. Anything that can help put that before you on a regular basis helps fill up and maintain that belief tank. So we know what to do. By God's grace, we will do it. But we need to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching in continuing to believe in God so that our hearts won't be as troubled. But Jesus has more to say here. Command of verse 1, command of verse 2, and then listen to this logic here at the rest of verse. He says, uh, and into verse 3, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So that's a question that he's asking there. And what he's certainly referring to there is heaven. He's using my Father's house as a reference, as a metaphor for heaven. And I'm sure there's some debate on exactly how this breaks down, but the way that I understand this is Jesus is not saying that heaven is like a mega motel. This is not like the Opryland Hotel in the sky where each of us has our own little individual room that will be the best room that we ever had. I think what he's doing here is he's talking about this place of comfort this place of eternal satisfaction, and it's got room for all of us. There are many rooms there. And I think Christians oftentimes kind of fall into one of two ditches when it comes to heaven. There are some groups that seem to only think about heaven 
and don't care much about this world. I mean, it's all falling apart anyway, right? So no concern for any type of justice, no concern for the poor. We're just hanging on until the jumbo jet of Jesus comes back to get us, right? So there, there can be an overemphasis of heaven, but I think where most of us probably fall is we don't think about heaven enough because we're just having the darndest time to get through each day. We don't lift our eyes very much to think about the great glory land that is to come. And so I think we need to learn something from this crew, but not overemphasize it, but appropriately emphasize it. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is using that great someday to help them in their today of great stress and anguish. And I love what C.S. Lewis has to say about this. He talks about this on a more sophisticated level as the inconsolable longing. He said, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts if we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and that which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. You feel that? That he's picking up on something. There's just something out beyond the edges here. of That which we can truly know and truly experience to the fullness. There's something beyond. And he goes on to say this in another place. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is a such thing as sex. If I find myself with a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it to suggest the real Doesn't it just kind of lift you up just a little bit? Just make you believe a little bit more that there really is something out there for us, a place of eternal comfort with many, many rooms. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's why he's using heaven to help them in their moment of hell. And look at this, verse 3. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Now, this idea here, I will come again, is in the present tense. It's, it's like he's saying, I am coming again. And in the New Testament, there are actually 318 allusions or direct references to the fact that the Lord is going to return and take us to be with him personally. Perhaps the best example of that, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, we, we, when he appears, we shall be like him, 
because we shall see him as he is. So when we think about heaven, I think a lot of things come to mind. We've established that it's real. We established that it's comforting. We established that Jesus uses it to comfort us in times of trial. But even if we're tracking with all that, sometimes I think we can overemphasize certain aspects of heaven to the diminishment of another one. Here's what I mean. We know it's going to be great. There's going to be literal streets of gold, or there's going to be streets that are so amazing that gold was what we had to try to describe them, okay? Either one of those is going to be awesome. But then beyond that, we know that there will be some kind of grand reunion for all those that we have lost, that went on before us, that had their faith in Christ. I can't wait to see some of the grand people that have preceded me there. But at the end of the day, even beyond those two and countless other elements, the thing that makes heaven heaven the most is that Jesus is there. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. And here's where I think this is helpful. I think this is helpful on two different ways. It, it's helpful insofar as it helps put those other things that are awesome and we look forward to in perspective that there's something even more awesome. And I think it also speaks to that little twinge within some of us, if we're honest, that is a little suspect about heaven because we're thinking somewhere that it's like some cartoon we saw along the way. If we're just going to sit there for 10 million years on a cloud, which is false, with a harp, which someone made up, I don't know that I really want to be there. I just see me getting bored with my ADD and stuff. Like there's that part of us that if we're honest, it can creep in. But if that is the case, this is where I think that understanding that what makes heaven heaven is Jesus really helps. Let me just read you this quote that I found this week. Have you ever spoken to someone who said he had no desire to go to heaven? sit on clouds and strum a harp for all eternity. Some think of heaven as endless boredom, like becoming a monk or a nun forever. No, heaven is about Jesus. And our view of heaven reflects our view of Jesus. And the less we think of Jesus here on earth, the less excited we'll be for heaven. If we think of Jesus as a boring, dull, cosmic killjoy, or if we view him as someone who's only to be tolerated, we will have no appetite for heaven. It's no wonder that people don't want to spend eternity with Jesus if they don't spend time here on earth discovering what an inexhaustibly delightful, satisfying, and magnificent Savior he is. We should view our time here on earth as preparation for an eternity with Jesus. Use the 70, 80, or 100 years God gives us to prepare for an eternal retirement. Invest now for your relationship with Jesus. And then I love this. Jesus gives living water. He is the all-satisfying source of eternal refreshment. He is not only profoundly happy himself, but he created happiness. Not only is he beautiful, but ugliness flees from his very presence. When we come to this realization, our appetite for heaven begins to grow. 
And we will no longer be content with the cotton candy of this world. The more our love for Jesus grows, the more our appetite for heaven grows. Heaven is not great because just that there's no sickness, death, nor pain. It's not great just because the streets will be made of gold and every tear will be wiped away. All those things are true. But heaven is great because Jesus is there. That's what we're really longing for. That's what we really want. Not just a pain-free future, but to be in the presence of Jesus forever. And I don't even think that we can really even imagine how great that that would be. But the hope is tonight. And Jesus' hope in that upper room is to gently guide us in that direction. To remind us that he has gone ahead. He has prepared a place. And he is going to bring us there one day. Now look at this. Because we get some interesting commentary here in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Thomas may be doubtful, but he's also very honest. And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So the principle that Jesus is giving here is this. I am the way to heaven. The only way to heaven. Now let's unpack this. The promise that Jesus gives there, that you will know, that you do know the way to heaven, it is in a certain tense that indicates it is, it's in the perfect tense that shows it's a past action with future results. So in essence, what Jesus is saying here is that in the past, you came to know the way, and that knowledge continues in the future. And this language here that he's using about the way, it's really interesting because it has roots in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a veil that existed in the temple that separated unholy people, and holy God. It was a symbol. And the only person that could go through that veil, it happened just once a year, and it was the priest. And then when Jesus is crucified, and just a, a couple of weeks from now in our study, you'll see this, the veil is torn from top to bottom. And we'll talk about the significance of that. But what he's getting at here is there is a path that we are to walk if we want to get to heaven. And it's not this path, this path, or this one over here. There's one, and I am that path. And to put a finer point on it, he's saying if you walk any of these other paths, they are not going to lead you to heaven. They're going to lead you to hell. But if you walk on this path, it will get you to heaven. And the good news is, disciples, you know it. Because I am that path. I am that way. I will take you where you need to go. And I love what one commentator said about this. In Jesus' specificity that he's speaking with here. Jesus does not only give advice and directions. 
He takes us by the hand and he leads us. He strengthens us and guides us personally every day. He does not tell us about the way. He is the way. Now, we hear that in our day, and that seems almost offensive. Now, this is what Christians have believed since the beginning. This is, there's no mistake about what Jesus is saying here. Just look back even in the, in the English of this. The articles that he uses here, the way, the truth, the life, they're all singular. So what Oprah popularized probably 25 years ago, that her, her, her take on this kind of thing, I'm assuming she still believes this, is that God is at the top of a mountain and we're all taking different paths to get up to him. Some people take the Jesus path, some people take the Buddha path, the, the, the Krishna path or, or whatever. That's, that's very popular in our day, even now. But that doesn't square with what Jesus is saying. In fact, that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. Because he is being as clear and as specific as he can be about the singularity of this path. That he alone is that way. And our culture hears that and says, we don't like that. That's too exclusive. And here's the thing, it is exclusive in one sense, and yet at the same time, Christianity is the most inclusive faith system that there is. It is exclusive about Jesus, and it is inclusive in that we will take absolutely anyone. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, what has happened to you, there is nothing that can exclude you from getting in on this if you're willing to get in on this. I don't know of another deal like that. There's always fine print at the bottom of every contract I ever am offered to sign. Cell phone, house, car, doesn't matter. The fine print here is if you will come to me and you will transfer the leadership of your life over to me, I will take you. What wonderful news. Jesus says, I am the way to heaven. I am the way to God. But that's not all. He also says here, I am the truth. You think about all the craziness that would have been around at that time. You think about how much 2,000 more years of craziness that we have today. It's good to know somebody that proclaims to be the truth. Because we all have to sort out a lot of lies. But then also he points out here that he is the life. Now, why would he emphasize with everything that was going on that he was the life? Well, I think it's because of everything that was going on. He knew that these men were about to watch him ebb away his very physical life in just a matter of hours. And he wanted to remind them again that he was indeed actual physical life, actual spiritual life, and that they could trust him even to the end. And so those three statements, the way, the truth, the life, set up that final statement about no one coming to the Father except through him. Now, when we think about how to apply this, probably many applications, but let me give us just a couple. The first one is this. If you're here tonight and you don't yet have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, 
this passage is for you. Jesus is coming to you tonight and inviting you onto the path of heaven as clear as the room that we're sitting in. He is communicating his love, his life, and his truth to you. And if that hits you in a way tonight that is perhaps even unexpected, in just a bit when the rest of us take communion, let this be the day that you take Christ. He loves you. He wants to save you today. Now, for those of us that have already made that turn, we're already on that way, so to speak. I think the application here is that this is why we need to share the gospel. There are not many paths to God. There are not many roads up the mountain. There is one way, and he just proclaimed it again. And part of the reason why we as his church is still here on the planet is to tell as many men and women and boys and girls that we can about this way. We do it with immense love, with immense grace, with immense patience, but also with urgency and boldness. The Bible says in the book of Acts, there is no, name, no other name under heaven whereby men and women can be saved. It's just Jesus. So this needs to bolster and encourage our evangelism. And I think another application here is we need to be overcome with a sense of humble gratitude. We didn't do anything to earn our way into this deal. We don't deserve anything other than God's wrath. And yet, here we sit tonight, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, commissioned to go out and to share with our neighbors this good news that saved us. So embrace the gospel, share the gospel, and be thankful for the gospel. Now, here in verse 8, what I, what I want to tell you is, and all the guys said, yeah, and they had a great prayer meeting and it was awesome for the rest of the chapter. But the Bible keeps it real, so look what happens in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And if I'm honest, uh, this is like where I would have like a teenage moment since I have teenagers, and this would be a face palm, and bruh, this is, Philip, what the heck, dude? How can you say this after all that you've seen Jesus do, and not to put words in Jesus' mouth here, but that's essentially what Jesus says. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So what Jesus is saying is that I and the Father are inextricably linked. This feels like the tenth time we've seen this exact same principle in our study. And then he goes further and he says, and if all the authoritative teaching, if all that I've said to you, both in this moment and for the last three years, if that's not enough, look at my entire life in ministry. And, and I don't think he's, you know, again, to quote my children, he's not hating on Philip here. 
But I think there's a little bit of legitimate, holy frustration of Philip. We have gone over this. We have gone around this tree so many times. I'm telling you, I've been sent from God. We are linked. I am operating with his authority. Look at the words. Look at the actions. Believe. And I think in his own gentle way, I think he's saying that to us tonight too. Again, there's no sense in which God is beating up on us. But I think there's a good call of encouragement here to us. I know it was for me. Because in the same way that when I get anxious and can get turned around and question the character of God and kind of have to be jarred back to my senses, there are times when I need to be jarred back in this way as well. And I find, particularly with the Gospels, that when I go back and read, I have this, it is a supernatural experience, but a supernatural experience where I look at this and I go, yep, yep, yep. Jesus really is who he said he is, because who else could do that? And Jesus really is who he said he is, because look how he handled this situation with insight that no one else has. And the Holy Spirit uses the word to draw me back time and time and time again to the same old story that points to the timeless truth of who Jesus is. And I don't think I'm unique in that. I think that the Holy Spirit wants to use the word like that in all of our lives to re-communicate and reiterate the love of God, the greatness of God, and the authenticity of the witness of Jesus. Now, just in passing here, let me say one other thing about that before we move on. If you're here and you do fall into that category that I talked about before, that you don't know Jesus yet, I think there's an application for you here as well. Because Jesus is saying, listen, my words stand up to scrutiny. He's also saying, my behavior, these miracles, investigate them. See, Christianity is not something that people are like, oh, don't look over here. Don't, don't, don't regard the man behind the curtain. Christianity says, look behind the curtain. Look at the empty tomb. This is a real thing. And so I think as we heed his words, we can be helped in a variety of ways. Now, one more little piece of text for us to digest here. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Jesus says this, and you know it's important because of how he starts. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So in a nutshell, here's what Jesus is saying. After he returns to his Father, which, fast forward, he's about to die, then he's going to be resurrected, then he's going to ascend, his followers will do, quote, even greater works, and we'll unpack that, and he will answer their prayers. Now, as you might expect even greater works. There's some debate here about how to understand this. There are some people that say, that, that's right, we're going to do even better miracles than Jesus did, okay? I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think he's talking about greater in another sense, but I've got friends who would say that. What I think he's getting at here is that the, the works, uh, just kind of ontologically, what the, what the word means here, it includes the word works, means miracles, miracles, 
and also his other activities and teachings, kind of the, the whole of his ministry. And Jesus seems to kind of be operating on two levels here. He's saying that his disciples should imitate the things that he did. So we should preach and we should pray and God does use people to, to bring healing and, and so like he does miracles, he does. But at the same time, I don't think that Jesus is saying the guys and gals that are going to come after me are going to one-up what I was doing. I think he's using this word greater in the sense of their scope. And this would mean they're greater in the sense of the worldwide nature of them and also that they're going to result in the transformation of individuals, of individual lives and also whole cultures and societies. Now, that is not to downplay the significance of the amazing things God does today. He does miracles. But at the same time, I don't think that we need to be running around with our head in our hands if we ourselves have not been a part of 10,000 miraculous things. I think what he's using this, uh, another log on the encouragement fire, if you want to think of it that way, is to say, I am about to leave, you are about to stay, I'm going to continue to do wonderful and marvelous things through you. Be a part of it. And it's going to be global. And it's going to be worldwide. And you get to get in on it. And also, this bit here about prayer, I think, is of significance as well. I don't think that he's saying here that every time we pray, we have to use the exact phrase, in Jesus' name. But I will say, there's certainly nothing wrong with doing that. But it's not, it's not a magic mantra. Is what, he, is what I'm getting at here. But when he talks about praying in Jesus' name, this is the way that he teaches us to pray in the model prayer, for example, the Lord's Prayer, that we are praying for the kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we are not praying, Lord, I'm desperate for a new Ferrari, but we are praying, Lord, we do need transportation so we can get to church and we can get the gospel out, so on and so forth and that Jesus answers prayers that are in line with his name. And in those times, when, we, when he doesn't do what we ask him to do, we are aligned with his kingdom purpose, and we trust that he's doing something else, and we got to trust and we got to walk with it. But again, all of this, I think, is filed under the heading of these people were in distress. They were in intense anxiety. And he comes to them, and he comforts them. And this last point understood through that lens is even though I'm about to leave you, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be at work within you, and I'm going to do amazing, unbelievable things through you. Now let's wrap all this up. There's been a lot for us to take in tonight. But here's what I hope is the net effect. I think for people who are here who don't yet know Christ, my sincere hope is that tonight you would meet Jesus. That's my sincere hope. For those of us who know Jesus, I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're helped. Because if you go back and you think through what we're talking about here, we have a Savior that is so in tune with their situation that he knows to tell them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And here's how we're going to avoid that. Believe in me. Believe in God. We're connected. Remember heaven. Remember how great it is. 
Remember all that you have to look forward to. Remember that I am going there, and I'm going to come back and get you and get you set up there. And then on top of that, I'm the way that you're going to get there, the only way. And then when he offers this other teaching, it's in the same direction. It's to comfort our hearts. Where do you most need his comfort tonight? Where do you most need the help that only Jesus can give? And which one of these truths sticks out to you the most and says to you, goodness, there is no one like Jesus. Man, he's really something. Friends, with those things on our minds, let's go before him now and let's pray. Oh Lord, we're thankful for this passage. And even though we weren't there in that upper room, And though our situation and our anxieties are not the same, they are similar enough that I feel like you gave this passage just for me. I feel like you gave this passage just for refuge for all Christians throughout the centuries. Lord, we thank you that you are that good and that you're that powerful and that your word is that inspired, that it's that timely. And Lord, we know that when the word goes out, it will not return void. And so Lord, I pray tonight that you would draw men and women, boys and girls to salvation and that you would encourage those that you've already saved. Lord, we are honored to have been in your presence. We pray that you continue to speak to us now through the Lord's Supper and the rest of our service. In Jesus' mighty name.